The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with two experts in the sociology religion. Sam Perry is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oklahoma. Perry is co-author with Andrew Whitehead of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Robin Perrin is Professor of Sociology at Pepperdine University and author of the article, What Makes a Church Strong? Rewards, Rational Choice, and the Potentially Undermining Effects of Reward Structures at Church-Affiliated Colleges and Universities. Today on the Annex, Christian Nationalism and Benefits for Co-Religious Faculty. Don't miss it. Well, welcome, Sam and Robin. So good to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Uh, first, Sam, what's it like to have a perfectly timed book? I see you and Andrew everywhere on podcasts. I've assigned your work in podcasts in my classes. Uh, you know, we talk about, and maybe some of us fantasize about being famous academics, but what's it like to have a book come out in such interesting times? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think uh, it's, you, we feel conflicted, honestly. I think we've been, uh, we've, we've had said that a lot to one another and to, and to others that, uh, you know, we, we wrote about this thing starting in, in 2014. Uh, so before Trump ever took office, we just thought it was something that was interesting and on the horizon, though we had no idea it would, Christian nationalism would be this thing that people are talking about. And it's been fun to shape those conversations. And as an academic, you want people to pay attention to your research and to feel like you're writing about things that are important. And at the same time, there's a, there's a sadness mixed in with that, that it has become something that is that we're watching unfold in front of us and that it's being used uh, in such anti-democratic and, and, uh, and, and noxious ways uh, for American politics, American culture, uh, even violence that, we, that we've, we've seen unfold in front of us. And so we're happy to speak into that. I mean, we can't take credit for like being prescient and kind of seeing that this would be the thing on the horizon. We just started about writing about things that we thought would be interesting in relation to American religion and politics. And, and uh, along came Trump and uh, started sounding this note like few had done before. And that's what carried him into the 2016 election. It's what it's what he tried to leverage in 2020. And uh, and now we are we're, we're still seeing it after post Trump. It really is amazing to see, you know, sociologists being so prominent in the media. You know, I'm, I like to say on my campus, I'm sociologist, sociologist's biggest hype man. And so uh, having the public conversation and sociologists being mentioned just, you know, warms my heart. So your book, Taking America Back for God, is about Christian nationalism and its effects on our politics and culture. How do you all define Christian nationalism? And what do you think it helps us explain about contemporary politics? Yeah, so uh, you know, our thinking about what what we're actually seeing and talking about when we talk about Christian nationalism has, as as research goes, developed, right? So, like uh, initially, we weren't quite sure what we were looking at some kind of uh, some kind of a, a political theology that really wants to see like explicitly Christian America, and and the the reason we thought that is because we were reading work by like Robert Jeffers or Tony Perkins or people who I, I would say are pretty explicitly evangelical Christian nationalists. I think now we, we understand that that is actually a, like a broader phenomenon. So when we talk about Christian nationalism, really at, at bottom, what we're talking about is a, is a, is a really American form of like ethno-traditionalism. 
Uh, and that, that's because uh, we're, we're pretty convinced now that what we're talking about in Christian nationalism is a white Christian nationalism. And it comes from the, it comes from the impulse, desire of a white supremacist, uh, uh, I think, bent toward wanting to see our culture, people like us. And, and in that framing, white and Christian are kind of the same thing. I mean, the two are really like you could almost talk about them like they're one name, white Christian. It's not just Christians and it's not just white people, but it's white people like us. Uh, and so we, what we've shown in, in various studies now, even since the book, uh, is that there's a big difference when, when racial minorities, say African-Americans, when they, when they look at our measures of Christian nationalism, they're thinking something totally different than what white people are thinking when they answer those same questions. And so even on a survey, African-Americans and white Americans might score the same on our Christian nationalism measures, but they behave totally differently when, when, we, when we try to start predicting things like racial attitudes or attitudes towards justice or immigration or, or policing or that kind of thing. And it's because when white people read those questions about Christian nation or Christian heritage or culture, what they hear is people like me, good, decent, moral, upstanding Americans like us. And so at bottom, white Christian nationalism or Christian nationalism is really about kind of this broad idea of ethno-traditionalism. It's, it's, it's going back to a time where the right people held the power and had the cultural influence. Uh, and that was white, conservative, uh, culturally Christian folks like, like us. All right, Robin, I saw you nodding your head in there. Do you have any, any thoughts about what Sam just shared? Well, I just, as he was talking about it, I was thinking about the, uh, Richard Hughes' book, and I mentioned this to you the other day, uh, Dan. Uh, he's, a, he's a religion scholar that used to be at Pepperdine. And I, I was reminded that uh, the, the, the people, people uh, you know, that, that, that the white and the black uh, respondents might view the world so differently. I was reminded that in Richard's book, he, he mentions the fact that, and this is only in, indirectly related to what Sam's doing, but that three quarters of Americans believe that the Bible teaches them that God helps those who help themselves. And it just occurred to me that, you know, yeah, you could, you could have two people answering the questions exactly the same way. And that just means completely different things to how they would live their lives and, you know, like different worlds. Right. So, yeah, it's fascinating. And the timing is perfect. The timing's perfect. I don't know where it's going, but the timing's perfect. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I've been reading uh, the book, and I, I will say what comes through to me is the complexity of what's going on underlying these survey responses and the real need to join qualitative and quantitative work together to get a full picture and understand what's happening you know, under and behind these numbers. Yes, absolutely. So I think what we try to do in the book is we try to use some interview data to try to flesh out exactly what people mean. But I think in future iterations of those kinds of studies, we would love to get the voices, more voices from, you know, African-American and Latino uh, individuals, Christians who, who are also interpreting those statements about what, what a Christian nation really means. Our perception from the survey data, in some cases, Christian nationalism doesn't do anything to African-Americans attitude. So an example, like whether you're high on Christian nationalism or low on Christian nationalism, according to our measures, and you're an African-American, that doesn't shape how you view uh, policing issues related to racial justice. It doesn't. It doesn't. You know. It doesn't influence. It doesn't sh change or move the needle at all. But for white Americans, it makes it jump up and down like it. Like it's. It's so white Americans who strongly affirm Christian nationalism are far more likely to say that 
violence against African-Americans by the police is exaggerated by the media, or the police treat black and white Americans equally, or black Americans die uh, at the hands of police because they're more violent than white people. It's related to COVID responses. It's related to immigration. It's all of these kinds of things. And what it suggests to us, and this is, by the way, this is even after controlling or holding constant other factors that you would think would be shaping that. So political ideology, political party, age, region of the country, education, once we hold all those things constant, Christian nationalism is often the strongest predictor. And that's also one of those, these things that we're trying to, a couple of things. One is that oftentimes, you know, you see these studies that sociologists put out and they're running regression models and they find like one star on like a variable and they make a big deal of it. Like it's this really, you know, powerful kind of influence. And really, I mean, it's just one thing in, 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 a, in a list of 10 other things that affect this outcome. Uh, but Christian nationalism is also often often one or two in terms of the strongest predictors of Americans' attitudes about race, uh, about gender, uh, about sexual orientation, about violence, about uh, you know authoritarian policing, about immigration law, about guns. Uh, and so I, I think we have tapped into something that is powerfully shaping the attitudes of white Americans. And again, I think it goes back to this idea of an ethno traditionalism. Like we want it, we we feel like something is being taken from us. And we want to take it back. And that's what Trump promised. I mean, that is like the, the allure of Trump was, hey, aren't you tired of getting bullied by these leftist, socialist, godless, secular infidels? Wouldn't you like to take back your power and your, your influence? Well, I'm going to give it to you. And that's what these people responded to, like the Pied Piper. Like, yes, that's exactly what we want to see. You know, like right or wrong, like Trump can do no wrong in, in the eye because he's fighting for people like me and fighting for us. And I think that's kind of what... Uh, we're tapping into. So that's one thing that, that that Christian nationalism is is not only a predictor, it's one of the most powerful predictors. But but the other thing we find is that, and, and this is what we, we try to explain to people who who feel like, hey, are you really just kind of, um, have you really just created a slur for like uh, conservative Christians who want to vote their values? We get that question all the time. Like, oh, if I'm a, often phrased in like a disingenuous kind of way, like, oh, because I want to live out my values and I want to vote for like, you know, Christian uh, politics or whatever, that, that makes me a Christian nationalist. And in fact, that's not what we're saying at all. What we try to underscore in the book is that once we hold constant the influence of Christian nationalism, once we include that in our model, people who are more religious, they go to church more often, pray more often, think religion is more important or read their sacred text more often, they actually end up being pretty great neighbors, right? They're they're less racist, less xenophobic, less Islamophobic, right? They 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 they're less raw raw guns, you know, and, and kind of blindly like Second Amendment is everything, you know. So uh, we we find that once we control out the effects of Christian nationalism, this ethno traditionalism that we're talking about, you know, being more religious actually shows you're the kind of person that 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 might be the kind of you know people we'd like to have, like people who would be like pro democracy. Uh, good neighbors, you know, good good Christians, essentially. Let me ask a, a follow-up question to that, Sam. If you take race out of it and you look only at white Christian nationalists, and then what do you see the differences between uh, looking at education, social class, uh, how educated what you would call a nationalist right. and less education, how do they, how are they different? Just thinking of each of those independent variables kind of separately, social class or education. And you know, anyway, what, what, what do you see this, the differences? Right. In, income, not a, not a super powerful predictor, but education, yes. So people who are, people who are, have you know, graduate degrees, bachelor's and graduate degrees are less likely to affirm 
Christian nationalist ideology. And that is likely both a self-selection effect and a, and a treatment effect. You know, so the kind of people who would self-select into graduate school uh, are, are less likely to be the kind of folks who would be Christian nationalists. But also in graduate school, you'd probably get that worked out of you somehow. Yeah. But if they if they did call them, let's say, imagine if they would call themselves Christian nationalists, let's imagine highly educated people as a pool and they, and they see themselves as Christian nationalists. Does it show does it show itself differently then, or how does it show itself differently than less educated Christian nationalists? I mean, are there, are there highly educated people that are Christian nationalists that, that just actually have very different attitudes about what that means, even if they're using that label for themselves? Uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think so. I think the, I mean, you can think of prominent examples of really educated, you know, Christian nationalist mm-hmm. persons. And, and for the record, very few people identify openly as Christian nationalists, because especially right. within the last six months, it's taken on such a negative right. Connotate. Nobody wants to like, yes, I'm a Christian nationalist. But when you think about like prominent, like, you know, uh, Dinesh D'Souza or Jim DeMint or, or Tony Perkins or Robert Jeffers or, or Mike Huckabee, these are all people with graduate degrees and education and, and, and people who I think would fit the bill as somebody who is, is what we're talking about from a more evangelical like bent or strain of Christian nationalism. There's also a secular strain of Christian nationalism. That's where it gets kind of scary, uh, even though it's scarier. But I, I do think, I mean, obviously with, within these folks, they're, they're better, uh, like a more educated person who is affirming Christian nationalism would be better at articulating their position than somebody who, in, in, in more sophisticated ways, I mean, like they would be more likely to be able to articulate maybe something about American religious history uh, that, that they feel like connects our current situation with the founding fathers and what they wanted the you know constitution to mean and their religious predilections and uh, that kind of thing versus, you know, somebody with a little bit less exposure to education who probably is going to be thinking in more us versus them kind of ideas, openly us versus them, you know, like demonizing the immigrants and the the minorities versus us good, you know, in, in less sophisticated, more open uh, conflict kind of kind of terms. But I, I think your, you know, your, your, your question, I think, raises this idea of what I, what I mentioned a second ago. I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing kind of a, a Europeanization of Christian nationalism. Uh, Rogers Brubaker, who's at UCLA and he's written a lot on like nationalism and religious nationalism, he identifies in Europe a, a strain of religious nationalism that he just calls Christianism uh, and an identitarian Christianism. And that is like among these populations that don't really have the evangelical history and language that the United States does, they oftentimes claim and they connect like national belonging with Christian status, but it's, it's, it's completely ethnic. Right. It just means not Muslim. Uh, it means like, you know, native born nat- or natural born citizen who culturally is Christian. And that's an important ethnic identity to them. And you don't even have to be religious. I mean, I think when we saw a lot of action at the Capitol in January, I mean, I think you would say that you could say that there are probably some evangelical Christian nationalists in there. But you also see the secular variety of Christian nationalists in that they it's not about being a good neighbor or loving Jesus or being a disciple or anything like that. It's about us versus them, our culture versus the globalists, communist uh, traders. And in that scenario, you can justify anything because it's just like you're not you're not even trying to be like quoting the Bible to those people is not an argument anymore because they don't really care. Right. Like they don't really care what Jesus wants them to do. It's really just kind of a cultural us and ethnic us versus them. And Christian is a part of that, but it's just really a small part. Well, this might be a good place to get into the typology that you and Andrew Whitehead 
outlined in the book of rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. So Sam, could you tell us about how you developed that typology, where it comes from in the survey, and how you use it in the book? Yeah, sure. So this is something we 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 bring out the typology in the book specifically. We haven't we've written dozens of studies on Christian nationalism now, and we always just use the full scale. I'll explain that in a second. But in the book, we decided we wanted to create more of a heuristic device to be able to talk about like who Christian nationalists are and, and to give people a kind of a language to talk about people's orientations towards this idea. So uh, when we first started studying this issue of Christian nationalism, we had the Baylor Religion Survey. That's all we had. And we had uh, some measures from the Baylor Religion Survey that had been asked in 2007. And they asked questions that we felt like led into this ideology we were looking for. So basically level of agreement statements, Likert style, Likert style level of agreement statements of asking respondents, how much do you agree with the following statement? The federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. So pretty, pretty explicitly Christian nationalist. Uh, but also uh, the federal government should advocate Christian values or uh, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. So implying that we have some kind of a special relationship with, with God, uh, or the federal government should enforce a strict separation of church and state. Uh, and we reverse code that one so that people who disagree with that don't really want a separation of church and state. They want the two to, to kind of work together. And then we have another couple of questions in there about prayer in public school and, uh, and religious symbols in public spaces. And so we add all of these together in a scale and they all hang together really well. If you're familiar with like a Cronbach's alpha score, that's like an, a, a 90, right? Like a 0.9 on like, uh, so they, people who answer strongly that they think prayer in public school is a good thing. Also are the same kind of people who, who answer strongly that like the U S should declare us a Christian nation. So it's not like a lot of inconsistency. So we use this scale that ranges from zero to 24. And uh, we decided we would create a typology based on how extreme people's variance was on that scale. Rather than say like, rather in the book, it would might be confusing when we talk about people who score a 12 on our Christian nationalism scale. We decided it would be better if we just kind of came up with the name for this like middle crowd and the extremes. And so, and this was Andrew's idea. I can't take credit for this. So basically he, he, uh, he, he looked at the groups, he looked at where the average was, and he looked at groups who fell within one standard deviation of the mean, both above it and below it. And so those are people who are right around the average in the bell of the curve, if, you know, familiar for listeners who are familiar with statistics. So these are people who are within that bell, the first, you know, standard deviation to up or down. And uh, those who were on the lower end of that, we called resistors. As people who are just not not in whole agreement with Christian nationalism, they, they are uncomfortable with it, but they're not like on the far extreme of rejecting it. And then on the other side of the average, close to it, though, you have what, who we call accommodators. And these are people who are like friendly to Christian nationalism, but they're not true believers. Uh, and then what we have is the extremes. We have people who fall outside of one standard deviation above or below. And so these are people at the tail end of the curve, the distribution. Uh, on the far left end, the people who absolutely reject Christian nationalism, we called rejectors, and the people who we, who, who we call the true believers are the ambassadors of Christian nationalism. And so, uh, so it's all, it's, it's, we don't use like a latent class model to like organize people according to like different responses. It really is just where you fall on the scale and, and how extreme your views are. So from the left to the right, we've got rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. And so throughout most of the book, when we're talking about Christian nationalists, we're really talking about that ambassador category, the people who score from between 18 to 24 
on our scale. So they score, they basically agree or strong, mostly strongly agree with every statement about declaring a Christian nation, Christian values, prayer in public school, God's plan, the United States, it's all connected. Uh, so we felt like that was a pretty fair kind of categorization. The thing that uh, the thing that shocked us, though, was how big that category of people are. And I think this is what, if we've gotten any pushback about the book, it's really, is it that large of a population that this is like, so it's basically like 20% of the population are people that we would call ambassadors of Christian nationalism. Uh, and so when we're looking at people who like storm the Capitol, and then we talk about ambassadors of Christian nationalism, people, I think, understandably push back in this area. Are you saying that like 20% of the population would be like on board with that kind of thing? Not necessarily. We think that's a really extreme instantiation. But for sociologists, I mean, we know we know what collective effervescence is all about. We know what Durkheim taught about what happens to people in crowds. Uh, and when you've got a bunch of people who are already inclined towards that idea and you've got a powerful like demagogue who's uh, speaking lies and misinformation and whipping them up into a frenzy and then they lose control. And that is really I mean, I think what we saw is is it was Christian nationalism, but it was Christian nationalism worked up into a frenzy in a crowd uh, where they've completely lost themselves and carried out a, you know, an, an atrocity. Well, as you know, I'm in West Texas and uh, there are some Christian nationalists about here. I don't know that they would, like, as you say, use that term to describe themselves. But I'm wondering about regional variation. It seems like there's probably some effects here in terms of, you know, coastal folks, folks in the South and Mid-South, folks in the West. Can you talk briefly about where Christian nationalism, where these accommodators are most likely to be? Yeah, it's it's Bible Belt. I mean, you could, you know, it's 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 Bible Belt, but I will I will say like we always account for things like region of the country and political conservatism and religious identification. So it's not just an evangelical thing. It's not just a Southern Baptist thing. It's not just like a church attendance thing. Like we said, it often goes in a different direction, church attendance. So it's, it, it's in the Bible belt. It's exactly where you think it would be people who score higher on Christian nationalism, but it, it, it's not what we, we would call epiphenomenal of another thing, right? So like epiphenomenal, meaning like uh it's really just kind of a symptom of this other thing we call race or this other thing we call uh, xenophobia or this other thing we call like theological conservatism. It really is what we try to argue in the book is it, it seems to be kind of its own thing. And so we think this kind of like ethno-traditionalist impulse that manifests itself in Christian nationalism uh, that, that we see is something that has to be examined on its own terms. So we see it exactly where we would, we would expect to see it among evangelicals living in the Bible Belt less educated population, you know, uh, and yet it, it kind of is its own ideology. Well, any updates, Sam, about American attitudes towards Christian nationalism or the ideas that you've been studying since the January 6th Capitol insurrection? You know, I think there, there have been a lot of things. We've collected data. So we in the book, we really just had Baylor Religion Survey data, and the latest wave was 2017 that we had for the book. And it's still like we stand behind everything we wrote in the book, but I think we we have since collected in 2019 to 2021, just in February, we collected another wave of data. And we've, we've been able to collect all of these national survey waves and ask all kinds of different questions about policing and COVID and uh, the Capitol insurrection and the elections before and after and, and, uh, and all of these different things. And I, I think the things that jump out to us now is, is Christian nationalism's, white Christian nationalism's connection to the populism that we've witnessed within the last five years, populism meaning the the suspicion of elites, the proneness to believe conspiracy theories, the rejection of expertise, scientific expertise, media expertise, and it manifests itself in a couple of different ways. One, we see it in COVID because we saw that 
white Christian nationalists were more likely to scapegoat minorities for the, for the pandemic, to say it's immigration's fault or it's the Chinese's fault. They were less, less likely to trust experts. Like the, when you ask, we asked Americans, who do you trust during COVID for information? And we gave them all kinds of lists. We gave them scientists, medical experts, the CDC, Trump, Republicans, religious organizations. And guess who white Christian nationalists were more likely to trust? They're, they're Trump by far, more than anybody. And, and medical professionals, scientists, CDC came way down on the list. So you see this kind of populist tendency to distrust expertise and to trust basically strongman demagogues, even when it comes to something like a pandemic. And, and they were the less like, like white Christian nationalists strongly predicted that people disobeyed recommendations. They, they didn't wear masks. They went out in public. They, they wanted lockdown restrictions to be lifted so that they, they could preserve their own liberty because uh, they felt like it was, a, you know, an encroachment on their on their rights to get sick and to get other people sick. <laughs> Scary. And then the last thing uh, in data that we just collected right after the Capitol insurrection in early February, uh, we found that, that that Christian nationalists, like white Christian nationalists, like almost, I mean, four out of five ambassadors of Christian nationalism or over more more than four out of five, over four out of five felt like the election was a sham, felt like Antifa and Black Lives Matter were to blame for the riot. They felt like that uh, it couldn't be attributed to Trump's misinformation and that he holds no blame. And, and it's all connected to race also. Like it doesn't work that way for African-Americans who score higher on our, our Christian nationalism measure. So what we are seeing is this kind of ethno-traditionalist impulse within Christian nationalism blinding Americans to the facts on the ground of just the reality, just reality, right? Like it's kind of a, like Jason Stanley. Jason Stanley is one of my you know fave kind of political commentators and philosophers. He's at Yale, and he wrote a great book called How Fascism Works. Uh, and one of the great, great chapters in that book is, is called Unreality. And he, and he just talks about how fascist politics builds on this, this necessity of, of just questioning reality, of conspiracy, of questioning expertise. Uh, does anybody really know? Uh, and just really um, discounting any, any sources of authority. And when that happens... You have people who just say, well, since I can't trust anybody, I'm just going to go for my tribe. I'm just going to go for the people on my team. That's the game plan. Uh, Steve Bannon, I quoted this on Twitter the other day. Steve you know, Bannon, who's this you know, political strategist for Trump, he, uh, he, he was quoted in The New Yorker uh, saying, we got elected on lock her up, build the wall, uh, and uh, drain the swamp. And it was anger and fear that drives people to the polls. And so our enemies aren't the Democrats. Uh, our enemies were the media, and the way we handled them is to flood the flood the field with shit. Like that's and that's. I mean, he he was giving away the game plan and saying this is what we did to try to win the election. We we flooded uh, the media with misinformation, so nobody could believe anything, uh, and then we 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 played on that populist impulse to get people scared and angry, and that is like Christian nationalism absolutely feeds into that kind of hysteria, unreality that Stanley talks about, denying just basic facts of what's going on in the pandemic or who obviously is to blame for the capital insurrection or the results of the election being uh, fair and voter fraud not being a factor, all, all of those things. So, uh, yeah, those have been the those are the things we're writing about now. I think one, one more thing I would just say, the thing that's on the horizon for us, and we see it in Georgia now, is the anti-democratic impulse of Christian nationalism. Uh, it's always been there that white Christian nationalism especially is not interested in, in free and fair elections because it's about us versus them and winning at all costs. Paul Weyrich, who is the founder, the co-founder of ALEC, 
American Legislative Exchange Council that, that basically writes legislation that has that has that has tried to reduce voter participation. Paul Weyrich is also the co-founder of the Moral Majority, and so there's this tight connection between Christian nationalism historically and voter suppression. And it's also what we see now. We find that white Christian nationalism is this powerful predictor that Americans think it's too easy to vote. We need to make it harder to vote. That that they would have, that they would support measures that require people to pass civics tests, uh, or that they would disenfranchise felons for life, uh, or that they they think voter fraud is rampant and voter suppression doesn't happen. That's kind of what we're talking about now: is this tight connection between white Christian nationalism and wanting to limit the kind of people who can vote so that you can rig elections. Hey, what a powerful driver that you all have identified in your work and, and really frightening for folks who are interested in a pluralistic, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, inclusive, democratic society. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for, for unpacking your work here. One of the things that your book brought up for me was the importance of boundary making and exclusion and the real material and, psycho, and psychic benefits that white Christian nationalists in particular get from the idea that America is a uniquely Christian nation. And this led me to think about the benefits that white Christians receive due to their status. So I want to transition now. Robin, you wrote an article about the this-worldly benefits that co-religionists often get at Christian colleges and universities. Can you explain your argument and what motivated you to write the piece? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I should tell you that, that this is not the most widely cited article that I've ever written, uh, even though I'm most most proud of it. I wasn't sure where, where to get it published, and maybe that was my mistake because it's not an empirical article. But I, I, uh, I teach at a church-affiliated school, Pepperdine University, and at Pepperdine, um, Pepperdine is very aware of, of the literature suggesting that the, this slippery slope down the secularization path within institutions begins when you know you, you slowly begin to abandon your church affiliation your denominational affiliation and so our administrators are well well aware of of the literature on christian universities which is most of the private universities in the, in the country that are are now completely secular and and the belief that the way to preserve that in part is to not lose your denominational identity. And in, in Pepperdine's case, it's a it's Church of Christ University. Dan Morrison, our host, teaches at one of those. And we're, but we're on, the, we're on the West Coast. We're in Malibu, California, not exactly the hotbed of uh, Church of Christers. And so we, we are quite aware of the need, the administration is, of, of attracting not just Christian students and faculty, but specifically Church of Christ students and faculty. And uh, so, honestly, part of my reason for writing the article was that I, I was suspicious of the system that universities employ to try to hang on to this denominational identity. And the way we, we do it, the way most universities do it, I assume, is, is if you are a Church of Christ student or a Church of Christ faculty, and you're applying for a job, you know, you have a you're going to get an extra look, and then so you've got you've got you've got this worldly benefit of being Church of Christ, and then it extends to Christian students in general. So, how does a university incentivize people for their uh, religious identity in terms of their denominational identity, Church of Christ, or in terms of their practices and beliefs as well? And, and what are the consequences of essentially providing worldly rewards to people to be Christian or to be Church of Christ? Robin, before you get into the 
so consequences of that, let's talk about benefits specifically. So if I'm a Church of Christ person and I'm applying to a job at Pepperdine, you're saying that I have a much better chance of being looked at favorably, hired at that university compared to other Christians or, of course, compared to non-Christians. And all of this in the context of an extremely competitive sociology and sociology and other fields job market where tenure track positions are exceedingly scarce and disappearing by the by the minute, it seems. You know the answer to your question, Dan Morrison. Uh, but that's the only reason we hired you, uh, frankly. When you were at Pepperdine, it was like, well, this guy's a you know an idiot, but he's Church of Christ. So uh <laughs> So we'll extend him an offer, and then and then if you stuck around long enough, we would have given you tenure because we got to keep you happy. We would have given you a full professor because we got to keep you happy. But uh, none of those things did you deserve because as determined before, you you know you were a doofus head. So um, look, I made bad choices in my life. We all know this, Robin. We all know this. <laughs> uh, but but you know but the 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 thing about the the paper that I'm you know uh, really more proud of is it has it has more to do with, you know, how do you get people to believe in something that they can't see? And so uh, Rodney Stark um, wrote a book. I mean, th this is a this is kind of his thing. And, and the book that kind of got me thinking about it was the, a little book that said I use in my social religion class, uh, The Rise of Christianity. It's, a, it's an easy read. Uh, students like it. It's, it's a very creative book. And, uh, and so what got me thinking about it is what, what are the consequences of offering worldly rewards to people? What are, what are the consequences of saying, you know what, if you attend church, so not just if you're Church of Christ applying to Pepperdine, but, but even, if you, even if you're in graduate school and you're not Church of Christ, first of all, if you're in graduate school right now, if Sam wanted to come to Pepperdine, he was in graduate school, I would say, Sam, go join a Church of Christ and be really involved. Go all the time, become friends with people there. You don't have to believe anything, Sam. Just go play along. It'll cost you a couple hours on Sundays and maybe a little bit more during the week. And then your your presence doesn't help that institution at all. And that's that's kind of what I'm where I'm going with this, but it doesn't help the institution. It might help you, but it doesn't help the institution. So what so how do you get people to believe in something they can't see? And for someone like Rodney Stark, you know, or the way I think of it is faith is faith is the assurance of things hoped for and not seen. Right. So how do you come to believe something that you can't see? Well, you come to believe it because you're surrounded by people who intensely believe it to be true. So if, if I'm in a church that where the person on my left and the person on my right are true believers, they, they believe when they die, they're going to go to heaven. And these people become important to me. And this is at their core what they believe. You know, you, it becomes more believable. The unbelievable becomes more believable the more intensely the people who are close to you believe it. And so if you think of that early Christian church where the, the worldly costs would have been so great of being a Christian, you could be killed for it, right? So these were, these were people who were intensely committed to their belief system. And so when they sang, they sang with energy. When they prayed, they prayed with, with urgency, with energy. And, you're, and, and if you imagine this, you know, this new recruit coming into the setting where, the, where people are actually could be killed for their beliefs, and these are true believers. They believe that when they die, they go to heaven. Uh, so what happens when a church begins to offer people, and it's not, and it's not just in church-affiliated schools like Pepperdine. I mean, 
all churches have plenty of worldly rewards that come along with being involved. It's what happens when the, when the Christian church became mainstream in a place like the United States. So uh, if, if Dan Morrison wants business contacts, he might go to church. If you want to find a spouse that's a nice person, you might go to church. Uh, there's any of a number of reasons you might go to church. So what happens when you fill these buildings with people who aren't true believers in the sense of, you know, their heart and, and deep in their soul, they believe that when they die, they go to heaven. What happens if you fill, fill in these institutions with people who are looking for worldly rewards, right? Uh, if, if, I paid, if I paid people a uh, hundred bucks to come to church, they might come, but their presence wouldn't help the institution create truly believing people so what happens when you do this and and so it's a problem with any church affiliated institution because you you dilute the experience so the person to your right and your person to your left are singing but they're not really into it they're looking at their phone and so at a, at a place like pepperdine if if you require people students to go to church in order to keep their scholarships you know what they're going to do they're going to go to church, but their presence dilutes the experience for everybody else. How do you get people to believe something they can't see? You get them to believe it because those around them believe it. Those around them believe it. If the person to your right is on the phone and the person to your left is asleep, you know, it's hard to imagine how you come out of there going, wow, this, this stuff is real. So I teach your article because I think it's really clever for this reason, and it fits our particular context here at, at Abilene. Abilene Christian uh, really, really well. I am curious, Robin, I mean, what would you say? I mean, how should religiously affiliated colleges maintain their distinct heritage if that's something that they want to do? And they buy your argument that providing this worldly reward to religion actually dilutes their fundamental mission. Well, I have you know talked with administrators about it. I, I did present the paper once to them, and that's, that was exactly their question. And I said, well, that's your problem, not mine. You know, I, I don't blame them. You know, there, there are more or less, I'm hesitant to use this word, but there's more or less slimy <laughs> responses to this. You know, so at, at the most slimy end, you, 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 maybe you hire someone who doesn't have a Church of Christ or even believe anything. We certainly have, have people at Pepperdine that um, probably aren't, I don't, I don't judge their, their beliefs, but I mean, the people don't, who don't come because they're, they're, they're super Christian. They're, we have academics who aren't necessarily, that's not their thing. Um, but, but if they wanted to become an administrator, if they wanted to be super successful at Pepperdine, they would, they would show up to church, you know? And so I don't want to, I don't want to sound like, you know, it's, it's all slimy all the time, but if and there are, there are situations that are, that are a little more to slimy. And so, so for example, there, are, and I will admit that this is, this is a peeve of mine. And one of the reasons I wrote the paper is that it, there are, there are faculty at Pepperdine who, who take a ministerial housing allowance? Okay, so can you define that for us. Well, I I don't know I don't know I have to get a tax guy in here, but but as I understand the history, the the tax break uh, it used to be that the parsonage wasn't taxed as income. So if you, if I if I became a minister of a church and there was a parsonage and 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 it, you know the church building on the property that wasn't and that was part of my salary. That part of the, of my salary wasn't taxed as income. You with me? So yep. I might make I might make cash i make i make a salary but but also the incentive was this this home so you don't tax that so then the question be, became well what if uh, a minister has to buy their own home so there's no there's no parsonage well we won't tax that home either so the IRS stopped taxing that home well who's a minister now you go down that road 
Well, in the Church of Christ, where there's no ordination process, priesthood of all believers, everybody's a minister. So quite shockingly, (laughs) there are colleagues at Pepperdine. I don't know. that It's always an under-the-table discussion. Nobody has an open discussion about this. You have to check the room for mics. You have to get under the table. And you have to say, well, there is this thing called the ministerial housing allowance. And so if I'm not Church of Christ, if I'm not Christian, if I'm not nothing, and I like money, it would be a, be a good time to start showing up to a Church of Christ. You, you maybe get involved. Uh, you fake it. You know, or you're, and I'm being overly cynical, of course. But, but certainly, uh, uh, there are, let's, let's be real. There certainly are people who are more involved. Again, I'm sounding super cynical, but, but I'm just I'm thinking like a social scientist. Let's not assume that everybody's motives are pure. Sometimes money matters. <laughs> and so uh, and so their presence, but the problem is that that's, if you imagine this person that quite literally is only in the church because they get a minister allowance because they want to have, you, you can't just get one for showing up. You got to be involved in this, you got to be involved. And they want to check enough boxes so that they can get the university to acknowledge their minister. Well, if they don't believe it, if they're there for the money, their presence dilutes the whole thing. And so universities are filled with people. This would be true of the Church of Christ uh, around Abilene. Students who know they need to be there, people who know to be there, faculty they know to be there, who'd rather be watching football. And uh, this is not this is not an image of the early Christian church that was so vibrant and and meanings and and uh, and faith was was produced collectively uh, by the by their fervent beliefs of the people there. You with me? Yeah. So I hope that this conversation has helped like illuminate what the connection was in my head when I'm reading Perry and Whitehead's book about this worldly power and control and sort of having the world the way you want it in, in your image, and Robin Perrin's article about this worldly rewards for, you know, sort of the appearance of adherence to some, you know, some transcendent set of meanings and, and Christian values, when underlying this are some real basic, you know, power and material, you know, interests. Sure. Nice connection. I read widely, folks. That's why they pay you the big bucks. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, having been on the faculty of Pepperdine, I can tell you the the uh, financial pressures on early career faculty and the salaries that are paid at Seaver College are just, they're not great. And I don't know if this will make the final cut or not, but they're not great. Um, and so, you know, the temptation to take ministerial alliance or allowance uh, because or exemption. So because your rent is two grand a month, and that was in 2012, you know, is great. Right. Sam, do you have any any thoughts that sparked by what Robin shared? No, I mean, I, I had the same thought about the financial pressures that would be on junior faculty to 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 do that. I, I, I feel like I would be tempted myself <laughs> a while back. I interviewed for when I was coming out of grad school, I interviewed for a job at UC Santa Barbara. And I, I remember thinking, like, how does anybody live here? Like they and, and the answer is they don't most of them don't live in Santa Barbara. They live in Galita, like a little cheaper uh kind of cost of living area. Yeah, but, really cheap. Really cheap. Galita, well, right? yeah, <laughs> I mean, but I mean like lower you know less expensive than Montecito or or uh or Santa Barbara proper. Um but they even that school had to like at a, as a state school they had to come up with all kinds of strategies to uh, make it easier and more attractive for people to live there because it was so prohibitively expensive to be in that area. And so I can imagine the the pressures that would that would be on, and just like mm-hmm. I mean, you were making the connection, Dan. I can imagine the, you know, you've got a lot of these people who really do feel like their way of life is being taken from them, and uh, and so it, you're willing to make all kinds of compromises 
in terms of your principles or standards when, when the ultimate standard is whether or not the good guys are winning over the bad guys. I, I will say I, I, I thought about uh, Robin's, Robin's point, and, and I, I think that's a, you know, coming from a church background myself and, and uh, a, a seminary background, and, and I think that is a, that is a constant pickle that, that uh, ministers and, and religious leaders and re- leaders of religious organizations have to deal with is, mm-hmm. is how, do we, how do we incentivize participation beyond just the, the free rider benefits? I love, I love Stark. Stark got me into sociology as an undergrad. We're in Churching of America and you know, the rise of Christianity and all those kinds of things. And so that, that resonates with me. But I often, I often thought that Stark doesn't really give enough attention to just how our identities, like mm-hmm. our social identities often drive. Like once we start thinking in terms of like team psychology, uh, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and what am I willing to sacrifice just to be kind of like for my team? Sometimes I, I think that, that that plays a role as well. Like mm-hmm. when I start to identify myself as a member of this community, then that might take people who would, who would have otherwise been fringe and they started doing it for more social or economic reasons and then getting them to participate and contribute to the organization because they feel like there's social pressure now right. uh, to eliminate those free riders, whether it's shame or stigma or just embarrassment of like not helping out in the nursery or, or not serving on a committee or that kind of thing. And sacrifice is, is the key, right? I think sacrifice is, is, is a key term and eliminate and the free riders are the problems, you know, uh, and the greater the costs to attending a place, uh, the greater, the greater the sacrifice the, the fewer free riders. And, and what's happened in places like Pepperdine is that the costs are eliminated other than the hour or two in the morning that you might have to do on a Sunday. Right. Uh, that's pretty minimal cost. You know, in our, in our system, and this is a, a, you know, this is not unlike what I'm sure Adeline is like, Dan, I, uh, the last question on the tenure application is explain your connection to a place of worship. I mean, it's the last question. Right. So it's not rocket science. Right. This is the tenure application. So what are you going to do? Now, would we turn someone down and said, I don't have one? Well, I don't know that the university would. I don't, I don't really know how everybody answers it. I mean, I've been on that committee before and I've seen the answers, but you know what you're going to read, some version of, you know, and so maybe after you get tenure, you say, well, I'm, I'm out, you know, I don't know. But all I know is that question right there assures your and it, it makes it you it's over You're, the person is going to have to go right and then how do we you know back to the question how do we get people to believe something that if, if this is the purpose of a church how do we get to believe something get people to believe something that that's that's they can't see and uh and so the minute you start piling them in you know you you've decimated the whole uh the, the possibility really that you can i don't want to be too cynical but because there are plenty of people who go to church you know at the campus church who are true believers right but boy it makes it harder and harder and harder to get people to believe something that they can't see hmm. well i mean the other thing you bring up in this article is the idea of tainted witness so if you are a true believer and you're going to church with people who are getting these worldly rewards you don't know who's who if, if i know the person taking the minister allowance i i eh, you know uh the, the minute, the, look at it this way. This is one of the things that, that uh, Stark says in Rise of Christianity. He says, I don't remember the exact language, but he says, you know, the ascetic b- believer who, who preaches, who's, who's in the streets preaching a sermon, you know, is, is, is going gonna, is gonna to beat out the uh, highly paid minister. The minute the minister's salary goes to $350,000, he's a tainted witness. 
he's a taint. He's the definition of a taint, or he or she is a definition of a tainted witness, right? $350,000 for a salary for minister. I I think you ought to keep your faith. I mean, I think that it would be in your best interest to uh, to stay uh, a Christian yeah. uh, versus the person who's, you know, who's giving up sacrificially so much. And of course, that's the point of the rise of Christianity. These people, the early church, sac- they sacrificed a great deal. It was a deviant movement. There were consequences to believing. And so when you're consequences to believing, you are there for, you know, the quote, right reasons. You're there because you think you're going to heaven and there's energy and, and there's passion uh, that, that is diminished once everybody around you is, is being rewarded in some form or another for their faith. And I don't want to be cynical about my colleagues. Uh, I, people say you're cynical. I'm not cynical. I'm a social scientist and I'm a sociologist. And I think that's what we do really well. <laughs> we question and we think differently about things. And so these are, these are the realities. So yeah, it's a, it's a fun paper. I think it's been cited, uh, you know, three times, you know, or something like that, but Oh, well. Well, we'll put a link to that paper in the there notes. You go. The notes there you go. And also, of course, to Andrew and and Sam's Sam's book and and good work. I mean, I will say on the on the tenure application here at Abilene Christian, there's definitely a question about your engagement with a local Church of Christ, and I can tell you firsthand that the tenure letter that comes in the mail also mentions that part of the recognition for uh, earning tenure is your is the applicant's contributions to a a local Church of Christ community. So, so what church do you go to, Dan? I go to Mentor Lane. <laughs> so we knew the we knew the answer. We, you knew what your answer was going to be. You had to go to one of them because you're no dummy, or are you? No, d- d- don't just make sure you but don't don't yeah, stop going there that. until you get tenure. Yeah, well, I got the letter, my friend. So, uh, oh, you did. Oh, congratulations! September first is the is the official is the official date. So well, t- that day you can become an atheist. Well, that's. Sam, I'm just kind of curious. Is there any way you could eliminate the Christian nationalists in any way? Can you make them go away? No. <laughs> no so, so something we've been working on recently, uh, we have, uh, I think demography will work its magic eventually. And, and uh, as, as demography does, but what we what we found is we 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 looked at the general social survey, and so you can share this or not, Dan, in in, in the in the podcast. But we we looked at the general social survey, and they have one question that they've asked over the years, and that is whether or not somebody approves or disapproves of the Supreme Court's decision to eliminate prayer and Bible reading from public school. And they didn't. It's not like you can't pray or read your Bible. That's always just kind of this red herring, dumb kind of statement that like conservative evangelicals make about like how they took prayer out of public school. They obviously, they just made it so that like teachers couldn't institute prayer and Bible reading in a public school. You couldn't make a Muslim or an atheist, like read a, you know, read a Bible. So, so people have been answering that question since the seventies. So what we did is, uh, is just divided up cohorts. So like, if you look at it over time, it's going down slightly. The people who like disapprove of that statement. So like, in other words, it would be a secularization story. More and more people approve of that decision of the Supreme Court to say, yes, prayer and Bible reading really doesn't have a place in public school. But when you split that up by cohorts, you see uh, the silent and silent and, and greatest generation flat, like in terms of their approval. So they say the same. You see millennials and, uh, and Gen Z or whoever is the most recent generation going up in their approval. And you see, uh, you see Gen Xers and boomers going down. 
In other words, and so this is where it gets interesting, you see basically people who vote more than anybody <laughs> uh, increased in their Christian nationalism. In other words, like a greater over time, the Gen Xers and the boomers have actually gone up in their desire to see like prayer and Bible reading in their public school in terms of the percentage wow. of the population. Uh, and so how do we explain kind of this like it, it, it answers a lot of questions for me because like how do we explain this kind of recent importance of Christian nationalism in our politics? Is it because like culturally it's more dominant a narrative? Not necessarily, even though it's kind of responds to these racial and cultural tensions. But electorally, we actually see like a really large voting block of people, the Gen Xers and the boomers, increasing in their desire to kind of at, at, in this by this measure want to see like prayer and Bible reading in public school. And so will we get rid of them? I think demography over time will get rid of them uh, as they as the millennials and the and the you know, folks after post-millennials end up growing in terms of their percentage of the population. They are a more secular tribe of people that don't, don't want to see those two things together. But as it stands now, uh, we actually see a really powerful voting block that has become more Christian nationalist over time. Mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to be that'll probably make its way to the, the upcoming book that Phil Gorski and I have. Uh, together and, and maybe in a, a research note or something like that. But uh, that, that was kind of a, a finding recently that we, we feel like needs to be made. Mm -hmm. made known. Well, tell folks, uh, Sam, a little bit more about the book with, with uh, Phil Gorski. Yeah, Phil Gorski and I are writing a, a, a book that's that's not like a part two to, to, to Andrew and I's book. It's, it's something that takes on a different argument. Phil Gorski is a historical comparative sociologist. And so uh, and I'm bringing in kind of more up-to-date data. And what we're trying to do is we're really trying to highlight the racialized components of Christian nationalism. We're talking about Christian nationalism, not as strictly a political theology, but a political theology that draws upon very racialized understandings of who the country rightly belongs to and who a Christian is and, and, and what that looks like. And so it, it, it emphasizes more so than the book that I did with Andrew, which, I, again, I completely stand behind. I'm not taking away from that book. But it, it emphasizes more, based on more recent data, how, how ethnically specific the phenomenon is and how, how it revolves around whiteness and authoritarian uh, populism uh, and conspiracy theory and, uh, and violence and anti-democratic impulses. And so I think it's going to hit on a lot of different – and Phil, what Phil does in his part of the book is he really traces the history of that. And says that it actually goes back a lot, a lot earlier than Falwell. You know, it's it's not just a, a moral majority Southern strat, or maybe even a, a Southern strategy kind of thing. It actually goes back a long time. There's a deep story to like white Christian America that we want to draw out, and then talk about how it's playing out in today's politics. That sounds like really exciting work, Sam. And, and thanks for explaining it to us. Well, guys, thanks thanks again for being here, and we really appreciate uh, our guests, Dr. Robin Perrin of Pepperdine University and Dr. Sam Perry of the University of Oklahoma. This is the Annex, a sociology podcast from the Queens Podcast Lab at the City University of New York. Mm -hmm.